One of the biggest obstacles for small businesses who want to do work for the Defense Department, it's the need for a facility clearance. It comes down to the old chicken or egg debate. A small business needs a facility clearance to win contracts, but it can't get a facility clearance unless it has a sponsor on a contract. Carlin Kapanos is Director of Small Business Programs for the Defense Information Systems Agency. She tells executive editor Jason Miller about how DISA is trying to cut through this conundrum. The easiest way, the fastest way for a small business to get a clearance is being sponsored by a prime contractor that has the contract, that requires a clearance, has a subcontract, and then they can go through the process. So that's the fastest way. What we're doing specifically at DISA is we've changed our participation plan. We have a template for anybody that's proposing small and large that it's part of our evaluation process when we're doing IDIQ contracts. But one thing that we've added into it is that the participation plan needs to include two companies, two small businesses, that in the first year of the contract, should they win it, that they will sponsor for the clearance. We put our first solicitation out for that, and we got zero pushback. So we got the names of the companies they're going to. So we think that's a win. We'll see how it goes. We also briefed this at the Winter Triad, which is a a group of large businesses, small businesses, and government agencies that engage in conversation. And it wasn't as popular in that But, you know, a lot of, I got a lot of feedback from that, from other agencies and other large, like, wanting that information. How did we do it? So I'm hoping maybe we'll get some forward movement that it becomes a standard practice because that, again, for us and for a lot of the other agencies is the number one barrier to entry for small businesses. And it's almost the chicken or the egg, right? If you don't have a facility clearance, you can't bid. Well, how do you bid if you don't have a facility clearance? So it's this big challenge. What, what goes into getting a facility clearance? Is it, is it it's paperwork, it's background, it's, it's what, generally speaking? What our office is actually doing about it is, is that we are hosting, and we do this once a year, where we host a training session for all small businesses that want to know what the process is, what they need to do. And so we invite DCSA, Defense Counterintelligence Security Agency, we invite them to come and do the briefing. And then we also invite our security folks, too, to add how it works within DISA. And so that's going to be June 13th. And if anybody wants to sign up, they can send us an email um, at DISA, small business, all one word, at mail.mil, and ask to be um, on the list to get the, uh, the team's um, invite. I'm glad that you guys are are publishing and holding that because I think, again, folks don't know what they don't know and and probably going through it themselves is challenging. You mentioned that this is kind of a a new uh, initiative, for lack of a better word, to to really kind of hold these prime contractors more accountable to to the clearances. Previously, did DISA not ask for this for the primes and subs? Was this something that came to your office as a suggestion from – one of the program folks from small businesses, how did you guys come around to say, hey, this is an initiative we should take on? It actually came from a conversation with my peers, my peer from NSA. He's like, what are you guys doing? How can you make them do this? Can we make them do this? And I said, well, we can certainly ask them to do it. And so that's what DISA has taken the approach. We want and need our large businesses to do this. And so now we've asked them. We've asked them to commit to it, put it in a documentation that's part of a contract. So the expectation is they're going to do it. As you said, you 
just kicked it off. You've got a couple contracts out there with this and, and progress is being made. So obviously something to check back in with you as we go forward. Let's take a broader step back. Uh, the other big piece when we talk about subcontracting is, is holding both DISA and, and the, the folks who make contract awards, contracting officers and the like, and then as well as primes around small business contracting, subcontracting goals. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing around there? I know, for instance, I've talked to the Army folks, and, and they're trying to hold the folks more accountable. How is DISA going down a very similar path? When we have our large contract single award or multi-award, we ask the contracting officers, can our office help you monitor it? And they all say yes, because they have a whole lot of things they need to do. And if we're willing to help them with one part, they're like, thank you. And so for our really large contracts like GSMO, GSMO2, SETI and Encore, we require all the contract holders to send in a biannual report on subcontracting, what they've done um, and who they've done it with and what, what scope of work and what dollar amount. And so those reports come to us. We help look at them. We help look against their proposed goals, against their subcontracting plan, and also just to help the contracting officers when they do their yearly CPARs to have the information on whether they're compliant, whether they're submitting the reports, whether they're working with us on things like our matchmaking. We invite all of those contract holders to have tables to host to meet it. So if they're not making their goals, what were they doing? Did you at least make a good faith effort to come to our event and meet with small businesses that want to do business with us. Biannual, twice a year, just to confirm that? Yes, yes, twice a year. That's always one of those terms, is it every other year? But anyways, I appreciate that. The other thing is, so what happens if you do find that a large business is not meeting their goals? If they said 45% and they're at 30%, or if they said 60% and they're at 20%, what do you do? What are some of those steps that your office and or the program office takes to go, hey, contractor X, you're not living up to snuff? We can do a couple things. One, when we evaluate the small business participation factor, we can take that information and include it in, in how they're rated. So if they're goose eggs across the board, maybe that's going to affect their ability to win the contract at hand. But more importantly, our office, when we provide the data to the contracting officers for their CPARs, but more instantly, when, when an issue arises or a question arises, we can actually ask to meet with that large business. For example, just yesterday, I had a meeting with one of our SETI contract holders to say, hey, I'm not sure you're really on a trajectory to be meeting these goals. Can we have a conversation? And how can we work together to ensure that you're meeting your goals and we're meeting our goals. And so we looked at ways to work together. They also provided us information on what they're doing immediately to execute more small business subcontracts. Sometimes that meeting is all you need to kind of jumpstart the process. Maybe folks are unaware that they're not doing it or they had plans and then something fell through, whether it was the, on the prime side or the sub side or the work itself. Is, is there a and I know this is hard to say because everyone's a little different. Is there a, usually a reason why large businesses struggle with subcontracting goals? Is it a lack of accountability, meaning the agency's not holding them accountable, or is it usually other factors that come into play? I mean, again, I know it's hard to say everyone's different. Right. There's always a reason why, and ours is more the question of what are you going to do about it. I think just making sure that our, our large businesses know that we are monitoring it, that we do want to know, and that we're willing to help them. Like you said, you get more, more honey, more more flies with honey than you do with, with vinegar. And so for us, it's just to ask to let them know that we care, we're watching, and we're willing to help. And so 
that's usually been my tactic, but I'm not opposed to taking, you know, a big stick and swinging it as well if we need to. I think a lot of small businesses are kind of glad to hear that you keep that big stick. You talk softly and carry the big stick, as I think Teddy Roosevelt may or may not have said, depending on <laughs> what history tells us. Uh, let me switch over to the broader idea. Uh, disawarded about $1.7 billion or so to about small businesses. There's some goals for 2022. Talk a little bit about your accomplishments and then talk about some of your plans for 2023, how you're building and, and, and continuing to meet your small business goals. 2022 was a great year. We did between 1.6 and 1.7 billion in direct awards to small businesses. That was over 28%, almost 28% of our spend, which was well ahead of our 25% goal. But we negotiated a lower goal because going forward, we have a lot of contracts that we're going to assume responsibility for that count against our percentage. It increases the denominator, which we can't really overcome based on our current requirements. We're taking on the JWCC. The 4ENO contracts are starting to come through, and those dollars are hitting our bottom line. My goal has always been to increase the top line, which is how many actual dollars. So that 1.6 to 1.7 from last year, can we do 1.8 this year? Um, to me, it's all about increasing the dollars we're awarding, no matter what our denominator is. Um, and that's always been my measure of success on can we increase how many dollars go into the banks and the pockets of our small business uh, prime contractors. Carlin Capenos is Director of Small Business Programs for the Defense Information Systems Agency, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up 
in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be. 
versus being at a place where others think you should be? One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it You know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.